HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Noah Wunsch, founder of Ruby, a line of zero sugar, organic, fair trade hibiscus water. Noah and Ruby have quickly become known for collaborations with artists and DJs, as well as his incredible newsletter. Ruby's going way beyond how we've come to think of building a brand identity and is now available around the Northeast in specialty shops, cafes, and in several larger markets, including Whole Foods and Central Market. Welcome, Noah. Hey, Allie. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Um, I'm excited to have you on. I definitely got my Rubyverse newsletter yesterday, read all about Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, <laughs> and I don't, you know, I, we're going to get to the newsletter and how you select all these things for it, but it really is always very fun and readable, and there's always something in there that I want to click on. So Thank you. That means well a lot. Thank you um, very much. So, you know, Ruby, first of all, it's interesting, right? It's a beautiful bottle. It's a single ingredient. It's hibiscus water. Um, and yet there's this like other thing going on that you're building. And I've been sort of trying to like from afar figure it out. But then in doing my homework, for the podcast, it kind of all started to make sense. So I think we should start with your role at Sotheby's, how that came to be, and then we'll kind of segue ourselves into Ruby. I love it. We're, we're going to be going on a journey today. I'm looking we're, forward. We're going on a journey. We're going through the Rubyverse. <laughs> right <laughs> I'm on. ready. I'm like strapped in. On, yep. I know. I feel like I should be wearing like a unitard or something, <laughs> you know, or like some sort of a jumpsuit with 
with moon boots. I'm I ready. was hoping I wasn't the only one. My unit yeah. already on. I, I feel like an idiot now, but that's totally fine. That's okay. No, I feel like we should have a visual of the two of us in a unitard. Um, I don't even know if is that the word the unitard? Yes, right. It definitely. It's, I don't yeah. know if astronauts were unitards. <laughs> but you know, but they it. might in the Ruby verse. Oh, totally. I mean, we yeah. can wear whatever we want. Right. You, you decide it's your universe. Um, all right. So tell me about Sotheby's. What so many fun things. Yeah. Sotheby's was a blast. Um, so I, I got hired at Sotheby's originally to run global innovation strategy. Um, which is a made up thing. That's not a real thing. It's, right. it's absurd, which is, yeah, which is awesome. Uh-huh. That was, that was a, a new role. And, um, you know, I, I, I had become connected to the company because someone I had consulted for, um, I used to be in media before Sotheby's. I, I had consulted for this gentleman, David Goodman, who is the Ubermensch, and he had become the CMO at Sotheby's Auction House. Got um, it. And circuitously, you know, after media, I was actually in startup tech for a minute, um, had had a great experience there and, and was able to travel a little bit and figure out what I wanted to do next. And mm-hmm. that's when the conversation with David started. So, yeah, global innovation strategy, absolutely made up thing, um, was kind of told that, you know, my, my job essentially was to, to disrupt from within, which is such a cool thing to tell someone like, what, yeah. what the, like that, that was like, what a blessing that was. Um, so sorry. So basically you kind of like, you sat at your desk on day one and you were like, Hmm, let's figure <laughs> out like, what does Sotheby's do? What do they sell? Who do they sell to? All of that stuff. And then like, let's figure out fun ways to like shake it up. Something like that. I mean, you obviously, obviously you're, you're picturing me with a corn cob pipe, which makes right. a lot of sense. <laughs> um, <Very much> so. <laughs> um, no, I mean, a lot of it was at first getting to know the company. I mean, you, you address that perfectly where it's mm-hmm. okay. This company has been around for, uh, you know, multiple centuries. Um, you know, it is it is a mega brand. It's a brand that stands for authentication and validation. And we always need to be true for that because that's our competitive mode. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are opportunities for, for new technologies, new media, new content marketing, et cetera, that we might be able to pull levers on. So at first it was looking internally to see um, if there were opportunities that were kind of low-hanging fruit for us. Um, and to be honest, that there weren't that many. I mean, David Goodman, again, he, he, he's a very, very smart guy. He, he had really started to rebuild our backend system for a unique CMS. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had put in a whole new content marketing platform where they were partnering with amazing celebrities. It, it was very cool. But yeah, interesting. It's kind of, that kind of was all happening. And I didn't even realize it was happening. But said the bees did do a really good job of sort of, you know, leaping into the 21st century. You know, I think with sort of, you know, all of these things being sort of diversified and, you know, auctions being kind of taken out of the few very fancy people with a paddle and like a ball gown, you know, there's like, they really did seem to be able to adapt to that, I guess. In, in that kind of point that you brought up, the idea that in so many people's minds, you know, auction houses, um, and not incorrectly, feel extremely exclusive. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you actually look at the data, and I apologize, my dog is in the background. No, my dog is usually barking in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but but if you look at the data, people I think would be really surprised to find that you know the 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 works that make headlines, of course, the Frida Kahlo mm-hmm. that recently sold for thirty five million dollars, the the Beeple that sold for sixty eight million, mm-hmm. those are aberrations. That's not the right. norm. Every single day, Sotheby's, Christie's, Phillips are selling works that um, I, I would say are comparable to you know, high-end design and mm-hmm. art places. Yeah. You can get an amazing couch for the same price as Restoration Hardware, right. um, but you have a built-in resale market if you ever want to sell it. So yeah. there, there's some interesting messaging opportunities there. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. But with with what I ended up doing be, before I left, I took over global e-commerce and playing with that idea, I was really focused on creating new access points mm-hmm. for consumers who might not have been aware that Sotheby's sells all these really weird, cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, started moving us into new categories that accomplished a number of goals, whether that was creating media and press awareness, new audiences and, and, and great sales, of course. Like Nike's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Nike's, yes, yes. Right. No, exactly. I mean, like, I mean, bringing in Supreme and Nike and like, yeah. I think, you know, and this is what the aha was for me and kind of, you know, studying you a little bit is that the lines between, you know, just like in a way you're democratizing the auction house, right? Through, you know, through bringing in these different channels, right? And these different things. But also I think you're, you were fundamentally saying that pop culture and art are sort of one and the same in a way and that, you know, and I think what I've gotten to with Ruby is that you're also saying that pop culture and a CPG product need to almost be one and the same too. So Ruby seems to be like as much experimental art piece as it is like ready to drink beverage. Is that right? I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I I think that is right. I think that one one mental model I'm constantly playing through is are we going too far in the experimental art direction and not being true to the fact that we also are a CPG business and, and, right. and a business, you know, we, we have to make sure that we're, we're moving towards profitability. Right. Um, so well, we're going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I mean, we're going to get, you know, because I think this is a really, I think while Ruby and you are super interesting, I think it's also really interesting to think about the lines between sales and marketing, because at the end of the day, right? Like a lot of what you're doing in the partnership space and, you know, in the co-branding space and all of that is, you know, what activations, all that stuff, yeah. right? That is traditionally marketing and marketing has sort of this bucket and it's separate from sales and there's usually tension between the two. Um, but I think one of the things that's happened over the last couple of years in CPG in general is that channels are blurring, yeah. whether that's, you know, Costco, Target and Whole Foods or D to C and, you know, you know, everything's just kind of blurring as is sales and marketing. And I feel like our, our, um, forecasts and our budgets haven't quite caught up with like the new reality that is, you know, selling a consumer product in 2021. Um, so we'll, we'll get to the profitability piece. Um, you know, in a moment. Um, 
But I mean, I guess going back to Sotheby's for a second, how did were, were you working in Sotheby's when you were thinking about Ruby? Were did you have hibiscus water? You know, we made a hibiscus tea at Haven's Kitchen because it was someone's family's favorite tea, but I didn't know that it was a thing globally. Um, yeah. Tell me why why hibiscus? Why Ruby? You know, how did the whole thing come to be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had a horrible sweet tooth my entire life. Mm-hmm. My entire life, I've tried figuring out how to combat that, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've tried every single snake oil solution under the sun, um, which is ironic because I'm probably claiming to have another snake oil solution. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that makes you the perfect snake yeah. oil salesman, right? Yeah. I'm calling it on the nose. We're, we're being open about it. It's all good. Uh-huh. Um, but but well, personally, like I'm not saying this works for everyone by any means. But I, I had started reading that hibiscus was a really great way to curb sugar cravings. Because all the yeah, the overarching flavor, there's no doubt about it, is tart. Like you get you get punched in the face with tartness when you drink mm-hmm. coffee. Um, but the finish on it is actually sweet. It, it's kind of like pomegranate or dried cherries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started making it at home and in that that little bit of sweetness uh was enough to satiate my cravings in the tartness became something that I was craving in a really, really big way myself. Um, and I was, I was doing this not with the intent of it being a commercial business. I, I was just doing it because it solved the problem and I right. liked it. So I, mm-hmm. I started researching and, you know, to your point, I knew hibiscus as, as a tea format that I could get at cafes mm-hmm. um, in, in reading then about it being, you know, indigenous to eight different regions of the globe, that the fact that it's been around for a thousand years, that it mm-hmm. started as just a few specific strains and through cross-pollination, there are over 200 different strains of it now. It, I, I became fascinated. Like I just became yeah. really obsessed with it um, and started playing around with the different flavors because 200 different strains yep. to me meant different flavors. And, and that was true. Interesting. Um, so I just did a whole bunch of R and D for fun and, on the other side of it, I was like, Oh, there might be a business here. Mm-hmm. And then what, what, I mean, I'm assuming you quit your day job. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I did. Yes. Uh, we spoke really early. I feel like we, yeah. I don't even remember, were you still working or had you already kind of decided like you were going to do this and you just jumped in with two feet. And what so, was that process like for you, you know, going from, you know, working in the auction e-commerce world into like making an actual good yeah those i'm gonna start with that one because it gives your <laughs> point on on how we how i got from sotheby's to ruby you know but i i'm someone who believes heavily in data um <laughs> shockingly so <laughs> um and you know I, I needed to find the validation points to to confirm to myself that this could be a business so right. you know I, I started looking at the beverage space and i was I, I was very genuinely surprised when I was researching beverage and sugar consumption mm-hmm. to find that the key driver of overconsumption of added sugar in our daily diets is driven primarily by sugary beverages. Interesting. Um, yeah. So that that as like pillar one, 
as a validation point was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Pillar two was the kind of macro conversation around that, where I think the conversation, correctly so, has kind of gone to the fact that sugar is the devil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and there have been that- a couple of different ways that the ready-to-drink world has addressed that, right? Yeah. You know, much more fermented or quasi-fermented, many more, you know, things in the bitter world that yeah. also, you know, I think might hit a soda itch. Obviously, the better for you sodas that are just unabashedly soda, but, you know, yeah. without the sugar. Um, and and so now you're basically coming at it from like, a well, actually, there's a thousand year old, you know, or I guess hundreds of thousands of years old uh, plant that we can just tap into that will do the trick. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I definitely... I, I luckily do not have the soapbox to, to make too many claims on those sides. And I, I wouldn't right. because again, disingenuous marketing, I think is part of why I wanted to do Ruby as well. And, and right. also part of the email strategy, but that idea of we have this thing that's going to cure everything, but it right. don't, don't look at the nutrition panel. Right. Like, no, you know what it, it says um, in support of that's, if you yeah. ever see something that says in support of it supports gut health. That that word support, it means absolutely nothing. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, but it is um, kind of, it reminds me of Vitacoco. Like it reminds me of, you know, we had Gatorade forever and ever and ever. And then all of yeah. a sudden there was this like thing that people were drinking in Brazil forever um, yeah. that was naturally hydrating. It just, there wasn't a market yet in the States and absolutely. they built it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um if the only claim we make is that we are a flavorful beverage that has no sugar, that's exciting for me. Yeah, like, totally. again, the, da- the data also shows like Americans want flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's what's exciting to me. But the other validation of course, was then starting to share it with friends and family and absolute strangers. Right. Um, and, you know, recognizing upfront that it's, it's polarizing. Like the first time I tried kombucha alley, I was like, yeah. This this is not good. I, I know. But, <laughs> this is this is a hard pass for me. Yeah. But then I became addicted to it. I know. It's um, I feel that way about like a couple of songs. You know, it's like it's just in the zeitgeist enough that you start to think you like it. I mean, honestly, yeah. one and one of the things I was thinking of, you know, when I did food studies, you know, my masters, it was we learned so much about um extensification, which is basically like when a taste profile starts in a select elite group of people and basically extensifies its way into the broader population like bitter, right? So, you know, bitter was always a signal of something, right? Of class or of, you know, whatever, you know, hundreds of years ago. And, it kind of made itself now, like now someone who's like very sophisticated loves Amaro or loves espresso. Um, But I guess my question is, is tart, you know, and then fermented, if you think about it, right. It's, it's interesting how it was like, it was a way for people to preserve, you know, farm food essentially. So it was essentially like a very um, non elite flavor. And then all of a sudden it became sort of a, you know, fancy thing to like, if you liked things that were really funky, then, you know, and now it's kind of settling back into, you know, everyone 
is developing this taste for the funk a little bit. Um, So, I mean, is that, is tart sort of on that trajectory, I guess, is, you know. I certainly hope so. (laughs) (laughs) If it is, it's going to work out really well for us. For you, yeah. Um, (laughs) For for me, like, again, this goes back to, like, how did did we get here is on on the quote-unquote data collecting side. Like, Mm -hmm. I read every single book I could get my hands on. And and two points from that were Mark Rampola's book, High Hanging Fruit. Um, yep. Mark, of course, the founder of Zico, mm-hmm. talked about how, you know, early days, lots of people told him, this tastes like dirty socks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we we acclimated and now we love the taste of coconut water. Yeah. Um, the other one is James Richardson's book. Yeah, Ramp. Um, Ramping for growth, which I love that book. I know. I, I read it in the bath again last night. Like it's it's so sad that that is like my let's take a like Epsom salt and relax bath on a Sunday <laughs> night, and I'm like I have all these great books on my bath shelf, like on the windowsill, and of course I grab ramping your brand, which is just so embarrassing. It's but not. I love it. I keep I keep rereading it. I'm like, oh, those you know just so many good points, and he was on the show like when he first published the book. Um, and I just, I think he's just the smartest guy in the field for sure. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. That book for me unlocked so much knowledge. It was yep. crazy. And, and this is me paraphrasing ad nauseum where, where he was using Siggy, mm-hmm. uh, Siggy's yogurt as a case study in, in the value prop of tartness. And yep. again, I, I am going to butcher it and paraphrase it in a way that it only makes me look good and Ruby look <laughs> good. So I'm saying that up front, but he, he essentially said like, don't bet against tart. Tart mm-hmm. as a flavor profile is equivalent to healthfulness yep. in consumers' minds. And yep. I was like, well, if James thinks that's a good thing. No, you know, it's so funny. I just have to tell you, Noah, because he also talks a lot about memorability, right? And like, that's his like, make a memorable. And I'm like, well, our pouches, they're memorable. You know, like you don't mistake them. You might not remember what our logo looks like or even what the flavors are, but you see sauce in a pouch and you know, it's us. So both of us are brands that, James Richardson would support. Uh, agreed. I co-signed that statement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get it made? Like, okay, you, you, you did your research. You had three at least very strong sort of like market drivers that you felt good about. Then what? Then, then I started talking to people in the space. Um, and, you know, shout out to Sandro from Sanzo, mm-hmm. Tommy Kelly from Sound Tease, Steven from Olipop, mm-hmm. Willa, who was at Bonza at the mm-hmm. time. Like these amazing people responded to an absolute stranger just hitting them up for a coffee. Yeah. Um, and, and Yanni from Lemon Perfect, too. Like mm-hmm. and all of these people who are so unbelievably gracious gave me some of their time and and walked me through the exact question you asked me, which is like, how, how the hell do you start a beverage company, man? Right. Um, cause, and, cause beverage is tough. Yeah. Like it's notoriously yeah. like sharp elbows. You got to be sampling the hell out of it. Everyone's mm-hmm. like, you know, field marketing and moving things behind other things. It's like, it's a different, I mean, it can be an incredibly lucrative and you can skyrocket pretty quickly, but you need a war chest and it, and it's, it's very competitive. 100%. Which has its assets and its liabilities. So, so did that deter you in any way, or what was your thought to mitigate that? It deters me now. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I would not do this again. Um, I know. Yeah. I know. And, 
that being said, like I'm going to work my, my absolute tail off to, to make this thing uh, as successful as possible, but Holy hell, man, it's, it's not, it's, it, it can be fun, but the majority of it is not. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, the good news is you're on the right podcast because basically I, I really don't want to, you know, obviously I don't want to be like, don't do it, you know, but I also really don't want it to be like how I built this. And I remember there were a couple of rough moments, but basically now I'm a billionaire. Like I really want people to, to get, to extract some stuff out of these episodes so that they can save themselves a little bit of the pain. And before you even start, you know, when people like people said to me, where does it go in the grocery store? A very simple question. And I yep. literally was like, eh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> like it, it could go in a couple places, right? And and that is true. It can go in a couple places. But when you have something that has no clear buyer, yep. it sets you up for a different type of struggle than in your case where there's a clear buyer, but it's also highly, highly competitive. So it's this is hard stuff. And it's, you know, this has been a weird year too. weirder than last year, I think, but all right. So you met with these people, did you, and then, you know, did you, you know, were you, was your first sort of step, like, how do I make it? Did you have the brand already in your head? Did you know, who's your first hire? All All of this was happening in in parallel lines. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my, though I, though I claim to function from a place of data, I also function mainly from chaos theory. So, um, the main, the main takeaway for me really simply was if you don't know what you're doing on the operations side, you need to find someone really quickly who knows what they're doing on the operations side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I started working with an operations consultant, uh, quick learning there was like, interview as many people as possible. He was a great guy, but it wasn't a good fit. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd, I'd spent two months with him already. And yep. if I had, if I had just interviewed more people, I probably could have dodged that. I think um, that's a really good takeaway. And, you know, I think I've gotten, I do that more now than I ever did. I used to be mm-hmm. like, I get married pretty much like if we had a good four minute conversation, like, good, the yep. vibes are great. This is great. They got it. All right. And I still have that tendency, I think as a human, but it's really good to have a plan B and a plan C. And even if those don't work out, you've met them, you can call them if things, you know, that's a very good little tidbit of advice. And it can't hurt to have like a broader playing field. All you need is one, but it's good to have four or five just to know that the one that you've picked is the right one Um, for now. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I spoke to, I'd say five different ops people after that. Mm-hmm. And that was yep. super helpful because it gave me baselines, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. you know, at, again, at that point you can look and be like, okay, that's way too much money. This seems to be the norm, right? This person I connect with immediately and they compliment me in X, Y, Z way. So mm-hmm. I ended up working with this guy, John Chiaroli, who runs a consulting group called Armatura. And, and I like giving great people great credit. Yeah, and John awesome. deserves great credit. Um, he helped me build the foundation for, for Ruby on the operation side, co-packer, supply chain, et cetera. Um, and what was that like? So you were setting that up in 2019 or 2020? 2020. Like I literally, I committed, it, it's funny because you asked when we spoke, Allie, and, mm-hmm. and we had 
actually spoke after I had left Sotheby's, I made the mistake that a lot of people make, which is I was like, okay, I've got this fun idea. I'm going to start this business, but you know what? I'm also going to take on like every consulting gig that comes Mm -hmm. my way Mm -hmm. um, so that I don't have to fully commit to this thing that scares me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember you and I were speaking while I was at one of the consulting gigs and it was after that conversation, I was sitting in that consulting meeting and they were going over a product launch strategy. Mm -hmm. And it was this really clear epiphany where I was like, wait, don't I have to launch a product or something? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that was February of 2020. And I I cleared my consulting gigs and and got to work on Ruby right before lockdown, like literally right right before lockdown. Wow. And then finding a co-packer and, you know, sourcing the glass and all of that, was that, did you get in kind of before the real challenges with all of that supply chain stuff started? Were they, you know, was it relatively yeah. easy to find someone to make it for you? You know, it's a great question. Yeah. We, we knew up front that we wanted glass, mm-hmm. um, which like, again, if, if you're thinking of this as like a filtered search and you continue to filter deeper, like yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, you start with, let's say 12,000 co-packers and you say, right. okay, I want glass. And suddenly your search goes down to a thousand co-packers. Right. And yeah. then you say, I want to do, you know, kettle brew for MOQ, my hibiscus. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And suddenly it's 50 and then small MOQ, minimum order quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly you have like three people you can work with. Yeah. Um, and again, thank God for John, who was able to help me navigate and understand out of those, let's say three to five, who was not trying to screw me over mm-hmm. um, and who who seemed like a really great partner with, with a great roster of clients they were working with. So yeah. we were, I was very lucky more than anything to have John and and to have someone guiding me, which is a very, a very lucky thing on my end. It's a privilege thing. For sure. For Um, sure. And a lot of founders come on here and say that. And, you know, it, that's, that's partly why if you don't have funding, you, you, you know, it's great to get some before, you know, it's also why this is not a business that you should be trying to feed a family on for yeah. at least five, maybe even longer years. Yeah. And that's just the, you know, the reality of it. Um, okay. We're going to take a little break because you got it made. It's in the bottles. It's coming out into the world. And then um, you created the Rubyverse. So when we get back, we're going to talk all about it. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm back with Noah Wunsch, founder of Ruby. Okay, so I'm picturing these like little bottle babies. They're so pretty. 
They've got their, you know, hibiscus in them. They're like ready to go into the world. Clearly you're a brand guy, you know, you know, you know what makes people excited. Um, I think that has been established. So what, what happened between I should probably do a product launch and like the universe that you've created now? It's a great question. That's a big question. (laughs) Um, Well, we've got the next half of the hour to talk about it. So, you know, I love that. I love that. The, the, The one thing I'll actually say that I think was, was really important for me. Um, I did, did to be transparent. I, I raised money from investors. Yeah, um, smart. But I, I, I was bootstrapping in the beginning, um, mm-hmm. and I'm proud of that. I very sincerely like that's. I'm proud that I can say that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had planned to launch in September of 2020, and uh, you know we re- we many of us remember what that was like. It, you yeah. know things were not open yet. The world was not open. And were you sorry? I'm going to interrupt for a second. But were yeah. you going to launch? In in an account in a store, nope. were you going to go nope. cafe to cafe? Like, what what was the launch plan? The plan on, on was, D2C? It was it was going to be direct consumer. It was going to be selling store to store, um, cafes, all that stuff. Um, and you know, I, I took a step back for a second, and you know, you asked the the number one question first, which is like, what what account were you going to launch with? Right. And there there wasn't one. Right. So I'm looking around and I'm like, well, the world is still shut down. I, I just read Mark's book, High Hanging Fruit, which goes over the data point right. <laughs> that, you know, cold beverage drops 30% on average. It's a good season during winter. Yeah. And here I am launching September of 2020 yep. going into winter. And I, I, it was a really, it sounds so silly, but it, it was, it was terrifying for me. I was like, yeah. I was like, why? why am I doing this? I've told mm-hmm. all these people I'm going to do it. So now I have to do it. Yeah. And I, I remember going for a walk with my brother and being very stressed out and just being like, I think I need to push launch, man. I'm like, I just, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm scared of it. And he's like, why are you scared of it? And I was yeah. like, well, uh, it's well, all of the, and he's like, you're, you're not going to go to founder prison. Like, yeah. And that's so weird. Cause we all do that to ourselves. Yeah. You know, we set these arbitrary dates Totally. That that come out of whatever. And then when we don't, you know, that's one of the things we just, I think you got to learn early on to let go. There's no difference in the world between September one and, you know, even May one, you know, if, if you're not selling anything in between now and then, just because you said that this would be the date, you know, a hundred percent. And then, you know, I, I call up my investors and I'm like, we're going to push it. And they're like, yeah, that sounds like a really Probably good idea. Probably a good idea, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that's one of those, like, that that framework, though, of, like, you're not going to go to founder's prison has yeah. always been helpful to me. There's no such thing. We all think right. there is. Ugh. We created the prison in our mind. That doesn't totally. exist. If it's a good idea, you know it, and, and you should follow your gut. Yeah. Um, but, but the brand universe, um, originally Ruby was going to be called Iggy. Um, and it was going to, yeah, I think, I think you're the first person to hear that. So breaking news. Um, it's good because that's like Izzy and that would be, it's better that it's not. A hundred percent. And yeah. when people asked me to justify it, I was like, I don't know. I really like Iggy pop. Right. Um, <laughs> didn't make any sense. Uh, but the brand, when I started working on what the brand was like words like edgy and, you know, subversive and like all those, you know, I'm a douchebag downtown New York City kid. Mm-hmm. Um, we're playing into the brand aesthetic and and my designers presented me with that brand strategy. 
And it was exactly what I had asked for, which right. was like completely inaccessible. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, very abstract. Like if you think this is experimental art, that was right. like, what are we looking at here? Um, and we threw it all out and we went back to the drawing board with, with the kind of keywords, accessible, friendly, and, and most important fun. Right. And that it is changed, very fun. Yeah. That changed everything. For yeah. us. Like that's when the brand universe started unlocking. Uh, and we realized that we could build something really big and weird and, there were no constructs for it. And now let's talk about building something really big and weird, right? Because mm -hmm. when people launch um, products into the world, they don't always say building something really big and weird. And yet it's, it is a absolute differentiation for you. Um, you know, I, I get that it's fun and, it is, I'm, I'm imagining much more accessible, but it is still, it has that kind of like shine to it where you touch it and it makes you feel like cooler than you actually are, which maybe is not what you intended because you are naturally cool. But for someone like me, I definitely having it in my fridge is a signal in a bit, you know, of a way. And, and I'm just, you, you did that right off the bat, which is really interesting. Um, how did that then, how does that translate when you're going from store to store asking them to take it, you know, in the cafe or the cheese shop or the deli, you know, cause those are almost like two different, they're almost like two different goals. And yet like you've kind of managed to bring them together. Yeah. Uh, and that goes back to that idea of like art versus commercial. Mm -hmm. um and and making sure that we are cognizant of both right um that and by the way thank you for you just said many many nice things thank you for well, that they're all real. Uh, that's very nice <laughs> my, my wife would disagree with the cool guy part but that's fine um uh for us i you you brought up the you, social indicator was something we wanted i.e right. something that to your point does make people feel special it mm -hmm. does feel like something they can accessorize their day to day with, which mm -hmm. is where those 10 ounce bottles came in um, because they're just they're, they're adorable. Like you want yeah, really to yeah, carry them around. They're, they're super friendly. Um, and similar to your point on your on your pouches, it's an owned silhouette. Mm -hmm. there, there was no other bottle on shelves that was really using those. So it was something that could immediately separate us from the pack as well, because that's a bottle we quote unquote. A hundred percent. And that's, you know, that's in Debbie Millman's book about Coca-Cola. You know, it was Which very, book is that? I have not oh read my gosh, that one. Wait, I got to uh, get it. No, I mean, I can't, I don't think I can Google right now while I'm on the podcast. Cause I might actually stop recording by accident, <laughs> but um, Debbie Millman wrote like the ultimate book on brand I read it. It was, it's where I learned about Jungian archetypes and where I learned about that, like Coca-Cola bottle silhouette, where it can be on the ground broken and you still yeah. know that it was a bottle of Coke and memorability and an own silhouette and all of that, you know, which is arguably hard to do with a box of cookies. Right. But, you know, in a way that's what, you know, 
you know, the chocolate bark did, and that's what pretzel thins did. You know, they, they took something that was sort of not that differentiated, but just by owning a different way of packaging it and putting it out into the world, they became sort of owners of it. It's kind of like the way that James talks about Skinny Pop, you know, snackable pre-done popcorn until Skinny Pop was in those big tin, (laughs) like, things with the three dividers where you had the yep. caramel corn and the cheesy corn and the whatever, and you got it for like, you know, holiday from some, you know, your exterminator company. And <laughs> then they all of a sudden made it in bags where you could have it throughout the day and not at holiday season. I mean, it's brilliant if yeah. you think about it. Um, so anyway, I asked you a question. I don't think I gave you the opportunity to answer it. No, no. So you can go back. <laughs> but I, again, it, it, for, for us, when, we, when we're going to a deli versus a coffee shop, like that's mm-hmm. a great example. The, the cool thing is that both places respond to the brand. They, yeah. they both really like how Ruby looks, the type font, the bottle. So that, that's a great, like if you have brand, great. You've, you've notched off one thing. Like, great. That's, that's one check mark. Um, and then you've got product. And again, right. for us, it, it really is like, it's well with, with specialty markets, it's easier. Like when we go to boutiques and coffee shops, mm-hmm. they'll try the product and they'll be like, great. Mm-hmm. Nothing else like they're like this. We'll definitely yep. take it. Yeah. We would but, have definitely taken it at Havens. Oh, I wish. Like, I it was so special. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's uh, a question, right? Cause yeah. we always talk about, you know, brand, so brand to me is, in, I think of it sort of in two ways. Obviously, there's like the brand identity, the font, the look, the whole thing. But then there's sort of like that other community and like the thing that you're building with sort of, you know, the group of people that are connected to all of these different program things that you're doing in the newsletter and the content mm-hmm. that you're building. How do you connect people who buy Ruby in a deli to that greater Rubyverse? That's a great question. And it's one that I'm trying to actually nail down further because we do so much demoing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you, you know, this, like when you run a demo, you have all of maybe 20 or 30 seconds to really Mm -hmm. get someone involved. And you should really be talking about the product. You shouldn't be talking about the brand at that Mm -hmm. moment. Um, So, so for me, a lot of it is just faith, which is crazy to say, but it's, it's also a matter of controlling your controllables. So like a lot of the events we do, whether that's uh, a film screening of Cruel Intentions or Scream, <laughs> or whether it's a seance to bring back 90 snacks yeah, with, with the one. snack shot queen, like those are, those are moments where we get to control our controllable and say, this is the brand, like this is the weird stuff we do. And if you, if you like this, like this is just the tip of the iceberg, like go mm-hmm. check out our email, check out our, um, check out our journal, check out our music. Um, cause there's a whole, there's a whole universe here, but that is like, that's controlling our controllable in, in stores. There's very little we can do very frankly. Yeah. 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 No, it's, I mean, I have learned that we actually, our new pouches have QR codes and I'm hoping that, you know, obviously this is always awkward to say, but that like one of the up, sides of COVID um, 
is that, you know, Americans, I think in 2017, I was like, maybe we should put a QR code to like link to recipes on the pouch. And yeah. we we're like, whatever research it was, was like less than, you know, 3% of Americans knew what a QR code was or how yeah. to use it. Now that's like in the thirties or something like that. So it's definitely, but, you know, again, why, you know, you drink something or you use a sauce, what is going to make someone then go to that QR code link back, you know, and that, yep. I think that's the thing that all of us emerging brands are really trying to solve because that's, you know, again, to go back to ramping your brand, like that's the repeat, right? You're going to get all these people to try it because it's beautiful and it looks delicious and it, you know, it tastes delicious for sure. But what makes it like, I'm going to go buy a case of this next time, yeah. you know? hundred percent. And so let's talk about what we talked about at the beginning, which is, you know, we're all trying to balance, you know, I, I always talk about a sailboat with the very clear caveat that I don't actually sail, but the way that <laughs> I, I think about it is like, you're letting it out enough to catch the wind, but you're holding it tight enough not to like luft around. And there's, you know, and that can be a couple of different things. But one of those things is you can't spend too much on marketing if you don't have availability, because it ends up just falling either on deaf ears or making people very frustrated that they have a hard time getting it. Yep. On the other hand, you can't just build out your availability without building that marketing, you know, muscle, because that's what creates the awareness and the vibe around the brand. And, and I think in a way, and this is very, very reductive, but traditional grocery brands have been good at sort of building the, you know, building the distribution and, you know, getting in more, more stores and, you know, D to C brands are really good at building that awareness. And that's sort of like, you know, feeling and zeitgeist around the brand. Yeah. And trying to get those two things to sort of come together seems to be the challenge for all of us right now. Um, so I guess it's a two-part question. One, why the whole universe? Why the music and the events and the newsletter and the journal other than, you know, I guess dig dig a little deeper on why, because you could do one of those things and it would still be different from mm -hmm. most of the beverages out there. Or is it just like, that's what gives you your flow and your joy? Um, so that's question one. Question two is, are you measuring? Are you able to measure a return on that? Are you able to measure, you know, if it's effective for actually getting people to buy Ruby? Yeah, those are, those are both perfect questions. Um, you know, on the first one, there are a few answers to why all of this stuff. Um, one of them is, is like jokes aside, very much for my sanity, like going, going back to the conversation on like, wouldn't do this again, Allie. Like, right. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, this is hard work, man. Like, yeah. If, if you're not having, if you're not having fun yeah. or finding ways of having fun with this, it's going to be really, really, really tough. Mm -hmm. Um, so ways that I'm allowed to be creative with this brand, get me excited. You know, a lot of people have hit me up being like, 
who's doing your email newsletter strategy? Like, will you intro them to me? And I'm like, that's me happy Mm -hmm. to have a call, like whenever you want. Um, and that's that for some people that might be weird, but like really all in all, it takes me probably 30, maybe 45 minutes every single week to do our Sunday cultural dispatch. Right. And, and it's like some of the most joyful time of my week where I get to really dive into the things that inspired this brand as well. Um, I got that. Yeah. So that, that's number one. Number two is in number two is in maybe it should be letter B. One yeah, B. one A. Um, right. One, one, one a. B. <laughs> one B uh, is I do think if you're if if you're going to make a universe and, and a lot of this stuff has been on the fly, by the way, like a lot of it wasn't thought of at the beginning as something core to our strategy. It just kind of organically uh mm-hmm. I don't know, blobbed out of what yeah. we were doing. Um, but we saw that people were responding to it. Um, and we started seeing that these different things were all holistic. They were they were feeding each other and creating new moments of intrigue where, um, you know, people have defined it to me in a way that makes me really happy because it's not overt. But they were like, a lot of what you're doing has people asking what's next. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. And that's, that's a really cool thing. Um, now to your question on two, are we measuring hundred um, percent? Right. You're a data yeah. guy. I'm a data guy. <laughs> uh, I wish my math teacher from like sixth grade could listen to this and be like, you got a D. Um, but, but, uh, you know, like easy ways of measuring this. Like we, we do a ton of events, right. um, from those events, we do email acquisition. Right. So you have to RSVP. So we get email acquisition from that. Um, we also get sampling from that. You're going to come to the event and you're going to try the product. Mm-hmm. We'll usually get organic social from that because mm-hmm. you're going to post about going to the event and you'll tag us. Um, and then we get follow on engagement either through, again, cycling them through emails, of course, um, or word of mouth, which goes to your point too, of how are you getting people to talk about the brand? And if right. someone says, what did you do last night? And you're like, I went to this weird freaking movie screening at the Jane right. Hotel that a hibiscus water brand was uh-huh. doing. Like, <laughs> that's that's going to stick with people. Um, mm-hmm. The other big data point, like on on the email newsletter in particular, our open rate is is anywhere from 40 to 50%. Yeah, which I know is rate. industry yeah. is like 30, right? Yeah. Or maybe a little lower. I think yeah. it's 23%. Yeah. Um, oh, then we're at 30. Yeah. You're yeah. crushing yeah, yeah, I actually feel that is a good thing. Yes, we're yeah. good at, yeah, our emails get opened. And click-through rate is super high. And, yeah. and when we don't do the dispatches, we see the same thing. But we we are really careful with how we send out emails. We, mm-hmm. you know, The reason we do our emails the way we do it is because me as a, as a consumer, I remember getting an email from uh, a beverage company, unnamed, uh, <laughs> before I was starting Ruby. And the email was like, Father's Day is coming up make sure you buy your father XYZ beverage. And I was right. like, uh, what? Right, exactly. <laughs> what? Yeah. I, would be, like, I would be the world's worst son if I got my dad this for Father's right. Day. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of those right. things where it's like, let's, let's reverse engineer yeah. how consumers want to be spoken to and right. where can we provide value? Like right. that's, it really is just starting from like, I as a consumer, if, I'm, if I like a brand, I'd love that brand to speak to me like I'm a human being, not yeah. like just a customer. 
Well, you know what's interesting? I actually think that that is at the heart of it, right? Like Mm -hmm. where we provide value as a brand is we teach people how to cook, not just use our sauces, but how to cook, how to hold a knife, how to roast a chicken. And we feel like that is what we hang our hat on and we stick to it. And every single thing we do has to run through that filter. But I think what's interesting is like what your value prop is like you're helping people filter all of the crap that's going on to like these cultural sort of moments that give them joy, you know, and make them think about the world outside of themselves or even this planet or this time. They're very transforming. Right. And that's, what's really, if I guess the nut of this in a way for people that are doing this right now, or thinking about doing it is where where are you providing value? And it doesn't have to be because we're locale. Like, yes, you are also providing value because it is sugar-free, but there's something bigger. And I think what's happened with all of the brands and how easy it is to make a, a product these days compared to 10, 15, 20 years ago is that it used to be you provided value by having a really high quality, decently priced offering. And that was it. That was all you really needed to do. Um, And it's different now because there are 15, like just around the bend that are very similar. But I love that. And so you are providing value. I think that's really cool. Okay. That makes sense. Was that 1B or 2A? I think that was 2A. That was was 2A, I believe. The ROI. The ROI question. Okay. Um, Let's talk a little bit just for, you know, the last couple minutes about things outside of the Ruby verse, like you're still a ready to drink beverage that, you know, has to kind of, there's, there's some amount of playing by the rules of the playbook that you need to do. Maybe not all of it, but you certainly need to hit the pavement hard. You need to do a lot of sampling. You probably um, have like 15 other things that you need to do, but let's talk about them a little bit. And you know, how have you managed that? Are you, is it outsourced? Have you hired someone, you know, what are those things for the people in the beverage world? Cause I always just think of it as scary. Yeah. Um, what are those things and how have you kind of tackled them? I mean, sampling, like That's sampling it. is my focus every single day. How can we optimize sampling if possible? Um, and, and every single Ruby knot, every Ruby team member does multiple samples a week. Uh, I do probably three or four samples a week. I did Brooklyn, uh, (laughs) Brooklyn fair, pardon me on North fifth last weekend, uh, had a great turnout. Thank you everyone for showing up. Uh, and are you calling the stores and being like, Hey, are you doing it again? Can I get back in there? Or, you know, a hundred percent. Yeah. Cause a lot of Um, them aren't, or they're all doing it. Again. Almost all of them are doing it again now. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me, to what to what you talked about, like it's scary, man. Like it's not fun. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I feel like for the brand that's supposed to stand for fun, like all I'm doing this whole time is being like, it's not fun, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think but you're just being what we call honest, and, <laughs> which is uh, not always the way that you know founders talk, right? But. It's, it's a, like sampling in my mind is a game of micros, like hypothetic. 
if in one hour at Whole Foods, I, I will stand and ask 100 people if they would like to try some hibiscus water. Mm-hmm. Of those 100, 70% will say no or right. pretend I don't exist, yeah. which, by the way, is That's always a great feeling. Like, yes, it's, that's it's, great. It's, we pretend like it doesn't take a toll, but when someone looks through you, it's a horrible feeling. Matt. It is, yeah. Um, of the 30% that try it, let's say that, you know, 55% really like Ruby. Mm-hmm. So let's say that, we're at, you know, 15 people, because mm-hmm. or 16, because 55, um, <laughs> like Ruby. You see, Mr. Richardson is very proud of me right now. Um, <laughs> uh, like, like Ruby. Great. Of those 16, let's say four of them on a weekly basis go back and start buying me. Right. Like that's, that's compound interest. Mm-hmm. And that's really, so, so out of a hundred people, if I can just, if I can just get four who on yeah. a weekly basis are going to go back to that Whole Foods and continue to pull Ruby, my velocity on a week over week basis is going to continue to grow if I continue to expand my sampling program. Yep. Totally makes Um, sense. And again, this is like, this is very category specific, right? Like we sampled the hell out of the sauces for, you know, that first, I guess, until COVID, right? And actually our, we went global with Whole Foods in April of 2020 and our entire marketing strategy was just sampling the hell out of it all over the country, which went to zero. Um, And so we had to very quickly find other ways to, to do it. But I, you know, a, I remember, first of all, it's very hard to sample a cooking sauce or a sauce that even goes like on something cooked, like just having a spoonful of chimichurri is really not fun for people. And like dunking a a little baby carrot in it isn't great. And we didn't always have, you know, the ability or the money to like pay for cooking every time we sampled. So for a snack, it really makes sense. A cookie, a beverage, you know, perfectly makes sense. It's, it's harder with a couple of other categories, but I also remember, you know, I finally just stopped being like, do you want to try sauce and being like, Hey, you know, I see there's lamb chops in your cart, you know, like, can I help (laughs) you make that better tonight? Like I found myself becoming literally like, an 80 year old man on a diabetes commercial who was like, (laughs) I take this and you should, you know, too. Like I really ended up getting super aggressive, um, which actually paid off because people, I was at some point, I think after like my hundredth demo, I was like, I can't have another person look at me with disdain. I just can't, I can't handle it emotionally. Um, but anyway, so you're sampling the heck out of it and you're, you know, yeah. your team is all doing it. You're doing it multiple times. Are there other, you know, are there other sort of, you know, in the, in the drink world? Um, and, and are you sampling in a place like Central Market where you have no, you're not there? Yeah, I, I, I sampled for two weeks straight in Central Market myself. I did right. two demos every day. To the point where, and this is another thing, like founders, take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. I on the on the final day, I was convinced. Not the final day, final day of the first week, I was convinced I had COVID because mm-hmm. I just like I I could barely get out of bed. Like standing yeah. for nine hours straight and on, uh, you're on. Yep, a hundred percent. And people are looking through you. It was mm-hmm. just like the perfect storm. I so I, I I took a day off and thank God. Uh, 
But no, every single market, you know, central market will probably head back down there in January because we have a promo at that time. So mm -hmm. I'll be back in Texas smiling and, and asking people if they want to try hibiscus water. Amazing. Yeah. Um, well, we, okay. What did you well, say? We did, yeah. We did that. I, you know, there, there are a few things that I, I wish people had told me in the beginning. Where yeah. Like, um, That's usually we, my we, last question. Yeah. We well, a don't do this. Uh, <laughs> be uh, like to the point of controlling your controllables. Like we knew that that paid marketing was just not something interesting for us. Mm -hmm. We did it in the beginning, no question. When you launch out, you're going to get more people on your homepage than you'll ever have. Most likely, you know, for the next. And by two paid years. marketing, you're talking about ads on Instagram and Facebook exactly. specifically, right? And mm -hmm. would would those ads go to a store locator, or would they go to your Direct D 2 C consumer. page? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we don't we do that either. We, by the way, I, we did I mean, it for a hot can, sec, but it just it it I can't. No cost per acquisition, yeah. especially like look people people can say their cost per acquisition is is thirty six dollars an order. And it might be, but in those cases, I'm usually like, are you baking in the person who you've hired salary into mm -hmm, that? Because like, mm -hmm. and what's the, what's the AOV and the repeat? Like what's the LTV associated? It, so just I, so everyone knows, AOV is average order value, which means that if you are paying a CAC, CAC or cost of acquisition of a consumer, they should not be more expensive to acquire than they are than what they spend. And yep. some people make those numbers work by saying the LTV, <laughs> the lifetime value of that consumer, you know, there is higher. So, okay, if you spend 30 bucks on them, but they, you know, and they're the average order, you know, the average lifetime is three orders, then you've made it back, right? Essentially yep. all of those proportions and ratios have to work for this this that channel of, of paid marketing to work. And what's happened from my understanding is that with all of the new iOS rules around privacy, it's gotten a lot more expensive to acquire a consumer, like like over 50% more expensive is my understanding. It's not my business, so I don't really know, but that's what I hear. A hundred percent. And again, with that, in, in the quote unquote funnel you put them through, there's, there's not a whole lot you can control after they get that box. If they mm -hmm. don't like it, that's it. If they like it, great. But now they have some awareness. So you don't, you don't know fully if they're going to come back to the channel. Right. Um, but it's expensive. Like mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of demoing to, to, com to compare costs me probably like $10 per demo. And that's, that's me amortizing the cost of, of employees who are doing it. Um, the cost of the tablecloth, uh, right. The cost of the folding table that we get in house, um, and you have built-in value directly because, again, if you are acquiring a new customer for the first time via paid media, that is a simple, essentially them demoing your product. Right. It's a it's a very expensive demo. A hundred percent. So, it, with paid media, it was it made a ton of sense for us when we launched. We got a ton of people on site, but as soon as we were past launch phase, probably a month after, and those cookies had worn themselves out, mm -hmm. uh, we we turned that we turned that off fully. And um, are they still in your email list though? Like so, those yeah. yeah, so that's good. You got a you got a nice jump start on having a nice juicy group of people to send email to. Absolutely, right. um, but with where we were having pre-launched. 
in in Whole Foods and demoing not be available. Like there were there were some fun little hacks, so to speak, that we embraced early just to make sure that we were driving people to Whole Foods yeah. to get them to try the product. Tell us about them, Noah. Oh man, I kind of don't want to because we're still doing it and I don't want everyone doing this, but I will because okay. it's a good thing to do. <laughs> well, you know what? Um, Most people aren't here at like minute 59. So oh, totally right. <laughs> cool. for the three people that have made it as far. <laughs> I always write that in my like in my investor updates. I'm like, here's a reward for those of you who've actually read to the bottom. Like you might enjoy this. <laughs> Uh, for, for those three people still listening, yes. what we did, because demoing wasn't around and because we were an absolutely new brand launching into one of the most competitive markets in the world, <laughs> we we realized that, you know, every realized, quote unquote, you can geotag locations on Instagram when you're posting a photo. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. went to every single geotagged location, so to speak, of Whole Foods in the Northeast. 52 different Whole Foods geotagged locations. Mm-hmm. And anyone who posted a photo that seemed at all relatable to a Ruby product, it was organic, it was coconut water, it was good for you. We right. would DM that person saying, we'd like to send you three wow. coupons for three bottles at Whole Foods. Noah. Um, huh. And that, that was that was something that I think really early on was really helpful for us. Yeah, very smart move, man. Um, all right, last licks, innovation. You know, you have all these people who are wondering what's next. Are you even able to think about what's next? Of course, you have to think about what's next. Yeah. Um, we, we have some big things planned for 2022. The one that I can share very easily is we have two new flavors coming out Ooh, fun. Um, in January. And those are, those are absolute fire. Mm. Um, one of them in particular, uh, ginger cherry, Mm, I think mm -hmm. is like, uh, somehow we've made a really exceptional product. That's one that like, I will hang my hat up on every single day of the week. It's it's really great. It's interesting, right? Because it's kind of in the like elixir world and yet you're not, it's not positioned that way really, but it kind of, it is right. Like tart cherry ginger. And I didn't know that it is pronounced hibiscus are all functional, but just not, which is really cool. There's like this, you're like, you know, again, you got one foot in and one foot in another a little bit. A hundred percent. And we, we only use organic products. We don't have additives. Right. Um, So again, we hope that consumers respond to that because we are a premium beverage too. We're for 399. So Mm -hmm. we know that there's, you know, that's not easy for everyone. And are you going to think about, you know, candies or chewies or other things that sound like fun made with hibiscus? I think maybe as like collaborations, maybe, right. you know, I, I think a hibiscus sauce. I think Valentine. Look, if you want to <laughs> listen, you be careful now, Allie. Okay, we'll get some like, Rubyverse characters mm, on HK. Oh my gosh, a little pouch baby with a Rubyverse yep. character like popping out of the thing. All right, we've got to start. Yeah, time, we're gonna. It'll only take two and a half years with the cool. co-packer, but that'll be great. We'll figure it out. Um, I, I want to do a chocolate for Valentine's Day, and yeah. I, I see that happening. I so see that happening. Yeah. Okay. I. I, I mean, maybe this Valentine's Day. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> you, you sound concerned. I know. No. I know who we'd do it with. I think I've already got the partner set, and I think okay. they actually have something very close to what we'd need. So I, okay. I think it'll be a pretty easy plug awesome. and play and we can do something cool. 
Well, let's do a partnership where like you make a, you make something with sauce and then for dessert you have um, a ruby chocolate. Done. Okay, Done. perfect. Um, any last things that you just, other than maybe don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> what <laughs> is one last piece of wisdom that you wish someone had told you or that you would like to just tell all the people who are in your shoes or like a couple months behind or a year behind? Good question. Um, I, I think, I think one thing that's been helpful for me in the, again, this is like on the don't do it scale. Um, <laughs> but, but like really seek out comfort in the fact that the odds are against you. Yeah, like, and, and know that, that. Mm-hmm. yeah. And know, know that whoever, whoever is investing in you, they know that too, but they believe in you. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really powerful. But like, don't, don't keep yourself up every single night. There are going to be some like where, you're just like, oh, if I fail, like everyone's going to hate me. It's not mm-hmm. true. Like no we founder, all know yeah. how tough this is. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I think that's actually really, really good advice because we read those numbers and we're like, yeah, but I mean, not me, but the reality is the reality. And, yeah. um, you know, we've already done quite s- some stuff, which is pretty cool. A hundred percent. Um, Noah, thank you so much for all of you who want to go check out the Rubyverse and um, get your Ruby on. It's uh, ruby.fun is the website. Is that right? That is right. Amazing. Um, and Armin, as always, thank you for, you have a very calm demeanor, um, which is always very nice on a Monday afternoon. So thank you for engineering, but also for just being a nice point of light in my week, Armin. Um, I will be back next week. Nope. Yep. I will be back next week um, with a couple of fun founders. We aren't on break yet. So thank you all for listening. As always, I appreciate it. I appreciate the DMs and um, write reviews if you want to. That way other people can get some of this amazing wisdom. Um, and I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.